This morning I'm going to cover another, what I would characterize as kind of a sweeping approach to looking at Scripture, pulling out different things that help us to appreciate the nature of man and uh, the sovereignty of God, as well as his um, omniscient sense or reality. So I'm going to start reading in verse 30, 13, Genesis 31, 13 through 55, and I'm actually going to read the first verse of chapter 32. So let's... Um, Jump right into the scriptures. Verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowedest a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. And Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us, and hath quite devoured also our money." For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels. And he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting which he had gotten in paid in Aram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian, and that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had, and he rose up and passed over the river and set his face towards the Mount Gilead. Verse 22. And it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days' journey, and they overtook him in the Mount Gilead. And God came to Laban the Syrian in dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mount of Gilead. And Laban said unto Jacob, What hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me, and didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs, with tabaret, and with harp. And hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Thou hast now done foolishly in so doing. It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake unto me last night, saying, Take thou heed that thou speakst not to Jacob, either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldest needs be gone, because thou sore longest after thy father's house, yet wherefore hast thou stolen my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Peradventure thou wouldest take by force thy daughters from me. With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren discern that thou what is thine with me, and take it unto thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then went he out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. And she said unto her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me. And he searched, but found not the images. And Jacob was wroth and chided with Laban. And Jacob answered and said unto Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Yet it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that they may judge between us both. This twenty years have I been with thee. Thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams and thy flocks have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts, I brought not unto thee. I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from mine eyes. Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters, and six years for thy cattle, and thou hast changed my wages ten times. Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. 
God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked thee last night. And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is mine. And what can I do this day unto these my daughters or unto their children which they have borne? Now therefore come thou, let us make a covenant, I and thou, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. And Jacob said unto his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made an heap, and they did eat there upon the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Shahadua, but Laban called it Galib. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Galib. And Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take other wives besides my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is witness between me and thee. And Laban said unto Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar which I have cast between me and thee. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. And Jacob swear by the fear of his father, Isaac. Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread. And they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. And early in the morning, Laban rose up and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned unto his place. Chapter 32, verse 1. And Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we have a simple prayer, and that is that thou would give us thy Holy Spirit to help us appreciate the depravity of man and the truths that thou hast set forth in this section. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Um, there are lots of spiritual truths in this section. It's so very interesting when you read through it in terms of the details. We have taken some forays in the past where I've talked about how Jacob represents um, Christ, and we've seen some of that. There is more of that in here. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. I'm really going to talk about um, the dynamics between the flesh and the spirit, and I hope the Lord will, quote, flesh that out for us that we might appreciate and see those things. Scripture is written on multiple levels, and so I can't go through all the levels, obviously, in one sermon. It really takes many um, times through a particular chapter of the Bible to... Uh, comb through the depths, the spiritual depths that Christ has hid in there. And so I, I hope you'll find this morning's um, scripture interesting. Um, I do appreciate, and I picked the, the hymns I picked today, um, speak of some of the truths that are in here. The first hymn we spoke about, talked about, that my raptured soul, you know, finds rest on the other side of the river. And so we saw that a couple of weeks ago where we saw that Jacob rises up, he crosses the river and goes up into the mountain. And so the river signifies crossing from life to um, death or from death, I should say, to eternal life. And so the people that wrote hymns understood the metaphors and the allegories that are uh, in Scripture. The uh, other hymn we sang, And Can It Be, is leaves you scratching your head. How can it be that I should partake of such a, a grace and such glory um, that God has bestowed upon me? Surely, as we look in ourselves, we'll find there is absolutely nothing in our flesh that would warrant God's or merit God's favor. And I hope we would see that as we look at the Scripture today. Um, by way of introduction, I, I want us to appreciate this from a secular perspective because we would attribute to secular authors things that we would not attribute to God, um, who is infinite in his wisdom. Um, one of my favorite books, and I've shared this with you in the past, is the book called Lord of the Flies, which is what means the name Beelzebub, which is a name for Satan in Scripture. So the author of that book, William Golding, takes the name of the book from the Bible, uh, speaking of Satan. So the book Lord of the Flies, as you may recall, is about a bunch of uh, schoolboys who had been attending a private school, and they crash land on an island um, in the middle of the ocean during World War II. And while they're on that island, they start, uh, the book opens up with the kids are eating fruit, and that should remind you of something because it was in the garden that everything kind of fell apart for man uh, when he reached out and took fruit that he was not 
that he should not have eaten. He was told not to eat. But no such constraint is on these children. But nevertheless, the book opens up in a, in a tropical scene with the boys eating fruit. They're on an island which, if you read through the scriptures, the island is shaped very much like a ship. One end is pointed, uh, so it, and when the waves come forth, when the current comes through, it looks like a ship moving through the water. So that's the scene that the author has set before us. And so it starts in a, in a place of constrained order, which quickly breaks down. And so there are all sorts of different boys whose characters help us to appreciate the, the turmoil that goes on in man. Uh, one of the boys likes to stand on his head, so you can appreciate that his life has been turned upside down as he's on this island, and they're working through all of these interesting dynamics. Well, there becomes a power struggle between the boys, and the group splits between two where you have kids that are trying to maintain and establish order, and then you have a group of boys that want to hunt and um, do more boyish activities, and it results in uh, things really falling apart. A boy is murdered by accident, I'm gonna put that in quotes, and then another boy is killed, and so chaos starts to reign on the island, and more and more boys go from the camp of order to the camp of chaos and disorder, where their feet are swift to shed blood. So as the story continues, um, they are ask, the author is asking the question, and as the boys are working out certain things, because they're young, they're afraid of the dark, and there's afraid, they're afraid there's a, quote, beast on the island. So the question the author is asking is, where does sin come from? Does it come from the land? Does it come from the sea? Or does it come from the air? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from man, and that's what they figure out. Eventually, they figure out, or you should figure out, that's what the author is trying to say. It comes from within us that uh, the problem is really us, and you can move to another location, but you're gonna take yourself, your depraved self, with you. So as the book progresses towards the very end, there's only one boy who's the holdout, and the rest of them are trying to kill this boy, flush him out of the jungle, so they think to themselves, let's light the island on fire. <laughs> so they do. So they start to burn the whole place down, and at the very end of the book, the boy who's um, nigh unto death by virtue of the hostility of everybody else, stumbles on the beach, and he runs right smack dab into a naval officer who has seen the fire from a ship, and he comes on shore, and you breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, you know, he's, he's okay. So the book closes out with all the boys now. Civilization, I'll put that in quotes, has been restored. They've settled down, and so they're sitting on a boat which is traveling through a water in the middle of World War II. So as you walk away from the book, you think, okay, this is going to have, this has a happy ending, everything works out okay. But then you ask yourself the question, well, the naval officer has saved the boys from themselves. Who's going to save the adults from themselves? Because it's the same picture. They're on a ship, just like the island looked like a ship. And so the, um, in this book, the author sets before us, the book is a parable. And it's about the depravity of man. And the true answer is man cannot save himself. There's nothing that man can do to keep the world from falling to pieces because of his own sin. So we might like to point to Beelzebub, but really the problem is within, within ourselves. Sin comes from within us, and it led to the curse of this earth, and that's where this book is. And so you can ask yourself whether or not the author is a Calvinist or not, and uh, you can um, entertain thoughts in that arena, but surely he's talking about the depravity of man. Interestingly enough, the high schoolers used to read that book, and they would have a mock trial where they would go up to an abandoned courthouse up near where Crestmore High School used to be up in that area. And they would put man on trial, and because all of the kids are depraved, holding the trial, naturally the conclusion they came to was that man is not depraved. <laughs> that it's, uh, man's sin is not his fault, but it's a product of his environment. It's not what's within his heart. So they came to the wrong conclusion, but you would expect that. Now, People are very comfortable with this kind of a, a parabolic authorship where um, human authors set forth allegories and parables unto us to teach about spiritual things. But they're not comfortable necessarily when you open up God's Word and find that God, who is the um, um, author of our faith, can do the same thing, except for he doesn't just do it in his narrative. He does it with the lives of people. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, that we are his epistle written in his heart, uh, which is known and read among men. And so the Lord writes things to help us appreciate various doctrine in Scripture that he sets forth for us very clearly in the New Testament. But those doctrines all come out of the Old Testament. And so when doctrine is quoted or principles are lifted up for our uh, appreciation in the New Testament, they come from things that happened in the Old Testament. Um, so I want to set that before us today, and I want us to be comfortable with it because God 
um, is omniscient, knows all things, he controls all things, everything is of him, to him, and through him for his glory, so surely he's going to give us a narrative that teaches us some spiritual truths written on multiple levels. So we should not be uncomfortable with that. We should not think when we read this that uh, God himself is a rather poor author with a poor um, copy editor when we compare that with, let's say, some of the finer um, works of human literature. God has put in this book what he chose to put in this book, and some things seem strange to us because he's teaching us something that's difficult to see and difficult to understand and, quite frankly, cannot be understood absent the interpreter of the scripture, which is the Holy Ghost. So with that by way of introduction, I want you to be comfortable with where I'm going to go with it today and pray that the Lord will open it unto uh, us, which I began the sermon with. So again, we open up with a superficiality. Jacob has worked seven years for each of his two wives, so he's worked 14 years. He's paid a dowry. He's been in paid in Aram, which means their ransom is high. His wife, obviously, is an example of the church. Christ came and he offered up his life, a ransom for many, a ransom for the church. Jacob didn't work for all the women in the area. He just worked for two, just as the Lord came and he died for those, um, his bride, and only his bride. So he's had uh, produced... 12 kids in seven years, and he has most recently served six years for the flocks that he has, and he has been blessed by God. All glory and all the riches that were Laban's, who is the father of those wives, are now Jacob's. Jake, uh, Laban is envious of Jacob, as is noted by, in verse 1, the change of his countenance towards Jacob. Now, whereas Laban has changed Jacob's wages ten times, endeavoring to bankrupt him, and you see that in verse uh, 42 of chapter 31, he would send him away empty. That's what Laban desires to do, is to send Jacob away empty. Um, it is reasonable for Jacob to fear that Laban would by force take his daughters back because we see that he calls the flocks and children his own, um, in Genesis chapter 40, 31, verse 43. We see that in here. And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children. These cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is mine. So Laban is taking ownership of what belongs to Jacob. So absent the promises of God to be with Jacob, and an appreciation that God will make sure that Laban does what God tells him to do, which in this case is to return to the land of his kindred, you know, to go back and be with his father. Jacob has something to fear. But he does have God with him, and he does have marching orders from God, so he, in truth, has nothing to fear. So Jacob did not have to do what he did in verses 17 through 21. In verses 19 through 20, we can appreciate that Jacob actually deceived Laban. Um, it says in there, let's see if I can find it real quick, that um, he stole away unawares to Laban and that he told him not that he had fled. Um, the word unawares there means that he deceived Laban's heart. And so he deceived Laban's heart in this process of, um, of departing. Laban had gone up to shear his sheep, and so there's probably was some conversation that Laban expected to find Jacob there uh, when he came back, or that Jacob would be shearing his sheep too, because it's probably done on a seasonal basis. So there was some deception on Jacob's part that he did uh, when he departed. Now, if Jacob had rested in the Lord and had trusted in the Lord, he would have simply said to Laban that he was leaving, um, that God had told him to return to the land of his kindred. We know in Proverbs 21, 1, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God reigns over the hearts of every human being. He can turn it wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. And so he could have turned um, Laban's heart there if Jacob had said, hey, listen, I want to go home to my father. The Lord has told me to go home. And so he could have appreciated that since God is with him, God has told him to go home, that when he tells Laban, I'm going home, that Laban would say, um, you know, by all means, go home. Let me kiss my children goodbye. Um, but that's not how this played it out, as you can see. That's not the way or God ordained that it should play out. 
So Laban departs, and we have some very interesting details set before us here in Scripture. Now, we can all read the simple narrative of the text and see that Jacob flees with his family and his flocks and has a three-day head start. He crosses the river and goes up in the Mount Gilead, where Laban, having pursued him seven days, nursing his wrath, catches up with him. Now, in verse 24 and verse 29 of Genesis 31, we are told that God warns Laban in a dream not to speak to Jacob from good to evil. That's the transliteration, from good to evil. So while God doesn't turn his heart much, what he does is he reigns his heart in as he does for all men. God reigns sin in the hearts of all men. He, raises, he reigns it in in the unregenerate, and he reigns it in in the generate. And I think it's First Thessalonians talks about that, about that he which, which letteth will let, meaning he that restrains sin in man. When he departs, this world is just going to uh, turn bad very, very quickly. It's the Holy Ghost that restrains sin in man. And we saw that in the scripture where the Lord restrained Abimelech from uh, sleeping with, uh, or uh, yes, with, I think it's um, Sarah, on the second occasion that he denies his wife. So God restrains sin in people. He has always done that, and he will continue to do that until such time as the flesh goes to the grave, and we go on to glory. So absent the restraining presence of God, this world would be awash in man's blood, as we have seen it in the past when he, let's say, starts to let go, leaves man unto himself like he did with uh, Hitler and Stalin and some other... Um, um, reprobate men uh, in this world. And the world is awash with blood when he does that. So Laban on a leash redirects his wrath under the guise of love for his daughters and his grandchildren, feigning an affection we've seen no evidence of, for there is one thing that Laban loves, and that is himself. Laban, in this context, represents the flesh. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, the Lord teaches us that no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, which is what Laban does. Laban most certainly doesn't want Jacob, who is a type of the spirit in this context, by whom he was earlier blessed, to depart. He doesn't want the spirit to depart. He wants him to stay there because he's been blessed by him. Now, if you flip over to Genesis chapter 24, it's deja vu all over again. We're going to see uh, Laban do the same thing that he did back in Genesis 24 when the servant of Abraham, representing the Holy Spirit, came and found a bride for Isaac. Isaac represents Christ and uh, Rebekah um, would be the church in that case. So after he has uh, been successful in terms of finding the woman whom the Lord hath appointed to be the bride of Isaac, he wants to leave. And so you pick it up in verse 54, and it talks about how after he's seen all of these wonderful things, Laban has seen all of these things. It says, and they did eat and drink, and he and the men that were with him and tarried all night, and they rose up in the morning, and he said, send me away unto my master. The Holy Spirit wants to depart with the bride of Christ in verse 55. And her brother and her mother, these represent the flesh, said, let the damsel abide with us a few days, at the least ten. After that, she shall go. He wants to hinder her, which is what he says in the next verse. And he said to them, hinder me not. Well, it's not to be understood as ten literal days. When you're interpreting the scripture, ten can be a general period, particularly if it's not uh, directly adjacent to the word days. Genesis chapter 1, those are all to be understood as one 24-hour calendar day. Because the Lord says, and it was the evening and the morning the first day, day 1. And it was evening and morning the second day. So you have the ordinal number right next to the word day. Here they're separated by another Hebrew word. So we are to understand that he wants to delay them in an indefinite period of time. Not simply 10 more days of, of mirth and carrying on, but, um, but an indefinite period. 56, verse 56, And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing that the Lord hath prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. 
And they said, that would be the brother, which is Laban, and the mother, who is unnamed, and we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? Is she going to go with the Holy Spirit? And she said, I will go. So she is ready to go, and of course she goes not only um, does she go, but she goes with her nurse. Keep that in mind. She goes with her nurse. And so it's common for Christians to first only be able to drink milk, and before they're able to drink meat. We'll see that later with respect to Rachel. See these wonderful parallels in Scripture. So, again, what Laban would do here is he would hinder um, Rebekah, his sister, from departing. And we see here that he's trying to throw um, stumbling blocks in front of um, um, Jacob, who would leave. And so we see in verse 27 of Genesis 31, he speaks of mirth, songs, tabaret, and harp. He's doing things that might appeal to the flesh. Let's just stay here and let's just have a big party. I would have done this back home, um, but you decided to part, so he's trying to throw these things in front of him that we can still do this. And so we appreciate what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, where it speaks about which in times past, which was when we were in the kingdom of darkness, when we were doing the will of, of Satan, which in times past we occupied ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So truly, um, this is not an innocent um, temptation. It's appealing to the flesh. It's desired. He's desiring to appeal to the flesh. And you know that as you are, as a Christian, you know that there were things that you enjoyed doing in the flesh before you were regenerated, which you don't enjoy now. But when you're a young Christian and people start throwing those things in front of you, you can quite likely stumble in them again and take some pleasure in the flesh in those activities, uh, though they would vex your spirit. And so that's part of the natural growth and walk of a Christian. So Laban would bring to Jacob's heart those things that he, the flesh, might find appealing because we know that the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And these two, of course, are an enmity one with another. So, whereas he meets with no success here, he then accuses Jacob of stealing his gods. Now, in a superficial sense, this is rather condemning for him because he is affirming that he is both an idolater and a fool. Now, why would anybody worship a god that can be stolen and hidden from them? How could a god that cannot protect himself, protect you. And so that is the foolishness that we see all over this world, is that people fool, uh, worship um, false gods that are absolutely impotent. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't touch, taste. They don't even have the faculties that we have in our flesh. And you see two wonderful examples of that. The first one I'm thinking of comes in 1 Kings 18.27. I'm not going to read that, but that's when um, Elijah is up on Mount Carmel, and he ultimately slays all of the prophets of Baal. But up there, a contest is set forth, and, be and he begins to mock the um, the prophets of Baal, and he says, like, where's your God? You know, is he sleeping? Is he out traveling somewhere that he can't hear you? He doesn't have time to deal with you. Um, and then the other place we see it, very interestingly enough, is Isaiah chapter 44. And I'm actually going to read that one because I find it so entertaining. Um, in Isaiah 44, I'll pick it up in verse 14 through 19. Um, the Lord puts this before um, Israel. He's speaking of somebody uh, like a carpenter. He says in verse 14 of Isaiah 44, he says, speaking of a man, he heweth him down cedars and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash and the rain doth nourish it. You know, you go out and you plant a forest. You are the author of the forest. You go out there, take a seed, you plant it, and it grows up. Verse 15, then shall it be for man to burn. Well, what do you do? You cut it down, you turn it into lumber, you put it in the pellet stove, and you burn it. Um, then it shall be for man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and he worshipeth. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roath and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, 
even his graved image. He falleth down to it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand it. And none consider in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I file down to the stock of a tree? I mean, it's ludicrous what man will do. He'll take a piece of wood and burn it, and then with the rest of it, he might overlay it with gold or something. He bows down and worships to it, and he worships and says to the wood that he burned in the fire, deliver me. Well, for goodness sakes, if it's going to burn in the fire and you have power over it, how in, the, how in the world is it going to deliver you from anything? The answer is it cannot. So um, Laban here shows himself that he is a fool and an idolater. He's, he's um, accusing Jacob of stealing his gods. So why would he worship a god or have a god that he can neither find and that can be stolen from him? How can a god protect you that cannot protect himself? And so that's the foolishness of man. So we see this set before us here. But of a truth, Jacob didn't steal them. Rachel did. So what does this teach us on a spiritual level as we endeavor to go a little bit deeper here? Well, one of the things it teaches us is that Laban, the flesh, has truly been stripped of everything. God working in Jacob has transferred what riches and glory he, the flesh, had and has transferred it all to Jacob, the spirit. All the glory and the riches that the flesh had goes to the spirit by grace of God. And he, the flesh, has even lost that which he trusts in, which would be his false gods. He has nothing. And as we grow as Christians, we initially think to accomplish things in the strength of our flesh, but over time, God teaches us that we are able to trust in him, that we must trust in him and not trust in ourselves. We must not trust in our flesh. And this can be a painful process as God strips us of ourselves. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, of the Apostle Paul is speaking of his experience. And he says, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, in other words, unless I be prideful, and our deacon already read from us where about uh, um, the Apostle Paul was lifting up himself in the flesh in, a, in the sense to show that it's, it's foolish to do so. Here we, he's speaking of his pride that he might have had by virtue of the abundance of revelations that God had given to him. It says, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Now, people think the thorn in the flesh was he had some kind of a medical infirmity, but I would say to you that that's not what it was. If you go back and read Numbers 33, 55, and Judges 2, 3, you'll realize that God left people in the promised land to vex the Israelites because they did not obey and to get them to turn to him. And you see that constantly in the history of Israel where they fail to worship God, fail to trust in him, and so he brings in somebody to humble them and they cry out for a deliverer. So it is true with Paul. He had the Judaizers, the, um, those that are of the concision, <laughs> that think they're the circumcision, which they're not. They went out and dogged him all over the Mediterranean. They took him out, they stoned him once and left him for dead. Um, he was beaten by a number of stripes, uh, 40 stripes, many times. And so as he chronicles his history and other portions of Scripture, you can see that he was beat up quite a bit, the Lord teaching him to trust in Christ and not in himself. So he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then uh, am I strong. And so a mature Christian appreciates that when God is stripping him of 
his various idols and gods and things that he has um, trusted in the past, that the Christian then grows in his faith and grows in uh, terms of trusting in the Lord, and therefore he can accomplish more in Christ than he ever could hope to have accomplished in his flesh. And so we see admonitions in Scripture where we are um, to um, not walk after these uh, flesh, but after the Spirit. That's Romans 8.1. You're admonished, admonished to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 tells us that in walking after the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So what things we would accomplish for the glory of God, we would only do so to the degree that we have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. So as our narrative continues... Laban, the flesh, in verses 38 and 42 of chapter 31. Laban, the flesh, is convicted of his selfish motives in which Jacob, the spirit, makes it plain that all things are naked and open unto the God of Abraham. That, of course, comes from Hebrews 4.13, that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So Jacob makes it plain that God has been watching over him and God knows what's going on here. God is the discerner, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. And so convicted and exposed for what he is, Laban, the flesh, sues for peace and proposes that they make a covenant. Back in chapter 31. So in verse 46, we see that Jacob and his brethren gather stones and make a heap which Laban is quick to name in Chaldean. He gives a name to it in the Chaldean language, which means heap of witness, uh, which Jacob then calls it something different. He calls it Galid, which, of course, is the name that sticks. We learned about that earlier. That was in verse um, 21. And that's the, the name that sticks moving forward in the future because we should appreciate that Christians, those that are regenerated, speak with new tongues. That's Mark 16, 17 in principle. We speak with a new tongue. We speak with the language of love. We speak um, the gospel, which the world uh, can't understand it as though we were speaking um, a new tongue to them, a tongue that which they cannot understand. And so it's interesting to note here, we are really only one generation removed from Laban, uh, in so much as that his sister is uh, Rebecca, but yet they're speaking a different language. Hebrew versus Chaldean. So God sets before us an inter a, a fun principle that um, we speak with new tongues. So just as you might expect the flesh to do, if you look over at verse 51, we see that Laban takes credit for, quote, casting the heap of stones between himself and Jacob. And yet the scripture told us it was Jacob who set that up with his brethren. But Laban's going to, the flesh is going to take credit for it. Now, look at verse 52. In verse 52, we see that this be a, uh, this heap be a witness and this pillar be witness that I, this is Laban speaking, I will not pass over this heap to thee and that thou shall not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. Now I'm going to just interject something here uh, very quickly because if you look at the next verse where they swear, um, we should appreciate that these are two different gods they're swearing before. Laban's got a different god than does Jacob. In verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. The God of Abraham is not the same God as the God of Nahor, nor the God of Nahor and Abraham's father. Different God. You recall that Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees by the true and living God. He was formerly an idolater. So those are two different gods. So when Jacob swears, he swears by the, quote, the fear of his father Isaac. He uses a different term. I want this to be perfectly clear to you, Laban, that, by the way, we're swearing on different gods. I'm swearing on the God of Abraham and Isaac and not the God of um, Nahor and uh, Terah. Two different gods. So the Lord makes a distinction here. But nevertheless, think back about that covenant that Laban says. Uh, by the way, um, I will not cross over this, um, and, I, uh, and you will not cross over it for harm for me. So there, there's just a slight difference here. Um, Okay, I found my place on my notes here. Okay, so Laban the flesh will not pass over it at all, while Jacob the spirit may pass over it so long as he does not do for Laban's harm. 
In other words, while the flesh and the spirit are contrary the one to another, we should appreciate that the flesh will let the spirit return so long as it does no harm. Now, this is parallel to what we saw back in Genesis chapter 26, verses 28 and 29, when a covenant is made between Isaac and Abimelech. Abimelech is the one who wants the covenant, and Abimelech is the one who says, okay, let's have this covenant that you will not do me any harm. So we see an interesting parallel here, so that again, so long as you don't harm the flesh, the flesh is happy to live next door to you, live in proximity to you. Um, so the flesh thinks that's okay, but God does not say that that is okay. In 1 Peter 2, 11, God tells us that the fleshy lusts war against the soul, and we are to abstain from them, and that, again, in Galatians 5, 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one against the other. So the flesh and the spirit can never live together in peace though the flesh would endeavor to do so. Come on down, you can come back here, you know, we'll, we'll do what we did before where I was blessed by virtue of God blessing you. So you can come back, but I just don't want you to do me any harm. So um, with this enmity between our flesh and our spirit, what is the Christian to do? Well, just what we see here in Genesis chapter 31. There needs to be a separation between the two. There needs to be a separation between the flesh and the spirit. And that is the witness and watchtower of Christ. That's what we uh, see separating between the two of them. So that the life we now live in this body, we live by the faith of Christ who lives in us and with whom we are crucified. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. We have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust, and Laban doesn't like that one bit as the flesh. And so we see that this uh, is all symbolized, that Christ is the one that would work, uh, that is in us, that we would live by his faith, because that's represented by the sacrifice that is made by Jacob upon the mount. That's verse 54. Jacob makes a sacrifice upon the mount there, and the eating of the bread by his brethren. There's a distinction made there. Laban and his brethren do not partake of this sacrifice. Scripture says that he departs and returns unto his place. Now, ultimately, the flesh goes to the grave while our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And so we read in verse 54, interestingly enough, that Jacob tarries all night in the mountain. And then in verse 1 of chapter 35, we read that he goes on his way and the angels of the Lord meet him, which should bring something to mind. It's suggestive of him being brought into the presence of God upon his death. Now, think about Luke chapter 16, verse 22, where we have the occasion where the beggar Lazarus dies, and it says that he is carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which is a metaphor for being brought to God in Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father. That's John 1.18. So I know I just threw some interesting spiritual parallels to you, um, but you have all of the scriptures in front of you that you can look at together. Now, before I leave this view of what the Lord sets before us here, I want to make a brief comment on verse 50, because that's a very interesting verse. So chapter 31, verse 50 Laban says, If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take other wives beside my daughters, no man is with us. He's saying he doesn't want him to do that. He doesn't want him to afflict his daughters or take other wives besides his daughters. Um, even though he's bought two of them from Laban, and Laban gave him two more with those two, um, and Laban has never expressed any particular interest in his daughters, and they understand that and appreciate that because they said that he's basically sold us. They don't appreciate that, that that's consistent, that a dowry would be paid for them. But I want us to appreciate that that's a very interesting thing here, that he would make that statement. And what we read in verse 19 and verse 30, that the images have been taken, his images have been taken, and, or which are later called gods. So they're, they're given two different names, images and gods. So why would Laban say what he says in verse 50? It just seems inconsistent with what... Um, with his true nature as a person. And why would Rachel steal his images or gods? Why would Rachel steal them? 
and not Leah, or the two women. Why would Rachel steal them? How does her life work out, and how does this all play together? Well, think back to the allegorical and parabolic nature of Scripture where God teaches us spiritual truth. So this is going to go down to another level here. Think back to Abraham, who lay with both Sarah and Hagar, whom allegorically represent two covenants. God tells us that in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. One represents the covenant of grace, that's Sarah. The other one represents the covenant of works, that's Hagar. So the women represent two different covenants. In context, women in Scripture can represent certain ideas, certain truths, and certain principles that the saints or Christians embrace. So women can represent certain ideals, truths, and principles that Christians embrace and the children that result from this embracing are the fruits of those ideals, truths, and principles. Now, think back to Abraham and Sarah. What did they produce? They produced a child of grace, representing the fruit that the covenant of grace would produce. Abraham and Sarah, excuse me, Abraham and Hagar produced Ishmael, which scripture says he is a wild ass of a man and his hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. That is the fruit of Abraham embracing the principle of works. Now, it was Sarah, the principle of grace or faith, who originally told Abraham to embrace Hagar, the principle of works. You'll see that in New Christians. They just, everything's grace, grace, grace. It's okay if you want to engage in a little bit of works until they realize that that's not really a good idea. And they learned uh, the hard way that that's a very bad idea, actually. So she is the one, Sarah, the principle of grace, who originally told Abraham to embrace Hagar, the principle of works. Now, whereas works or the law didn't bear the intended fruit, it was Sarah who again told Abraham what to do. She told him to put her out. In other words, get rid of the principle of works. It's never going to bear fruit that will bring glory to God. It has no promises. Uh, it has no part in the promises of God, and it is not an ideal or principle that we should ever embrace. It is a relationship that will never bear fruit unto God's eternal glory. Now, in like manner, Jacob's got four women here that he has embraced. He's got two primary wives. Those are the primary principles and truths that we embrace. And he's got two that are um, subordinate to that. Just like if you think of the complexity of the things that you hold to be true and the principles that you have. You have some ones that are very resolute, very strong, very out, out in the open. And there are ones that are subordinate to them. Life is complicated and people are very complicated in their internal workings. And God is helping set some of that before us here. So these women represent truths and principles and ideals that Jacob has spiritually embraced. Laban, the flesh, has given birth to two of these women, and with those two, he has given other two subordinate to them. So what we read in verse 50 is his affection for those principles, and he desires that they not be put out or afflicted, as was Hagar. He desires that Jacob, the spirit, do not take on or embrace principles that are greater than what the flesh has given him. So he desires that Jacob not put out principles or truths that are greater than the ones that the flesh has given him. Rachel, we know the beautiful and well-favored one, is the one who stole the idols or gods or the images or gods of the flesh. Now, what, what might those be? Well, the Scripture uses the word images, and there are um, commentators who think that those images represent um, departed relatives, people that you know were in your, in your line and they have died before you. So I would suggest to you that they represent pride in self is the biggest image, idol, or God that we have, and that, of course, is ourselves. Now, um, so with Rachel... She is the principle that is clinging to the past and is the one of the four, interestingly enough, that dies. Isn't that what Jacob says? Let whomever it is found with, let them die. So that's the principle that is going to have to die. Um, but before she dies, interestingly enough, in Genesis 35, verse 8, we notice that her nurse dies. Her nurse precedes her. So 
Of all of the wives, she has produced the least amount of children up to that point. She's only produced one child. That principle is not going to bear much fruit. We should appreciate that. You know, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 talks about milk versus meat. And so with the death of her nurse, she's transitioning from milk to meat in principle. And as a result of that transitioning to the meat, then she must die. And so in so doing, in her death, what happens, of course, she bears fruit. Um, and so it must be for all of us is that we must let go of the past. We have to let go of those things that we trusted in the past, the principles and ideals that are beautiful and well-favored to us must go. And we appreciate that every Christian brings some baggage in with them as they walk in newness of life. Philippians 3, 13 and 14 that our deacon read, God tells us to forget those things which are behind and reach forth unto those things which are before. In other words, don't think about your former sin. Don't be um, preoccupied with those things. Forget about those things. Um, but also, as a new creature in Christ, you would put those things behind you anyway. And press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we put things behind, and we turn, and we face only forward, and face only Christ, and keep our eyes fixed on Him that we, as we walk in newness of life. So, verse 25, back in Genesis 31, back here on the Mount Gilead, heap of witness, we find interesting language here. We find that Jacob has pitched his tent in the mount, while Scripture tells us that Laban with his brethren had pitched in the Mount of Gilead. There's no tent. Now, you think God overlooked that, or you think he's trying to teach us something here? Well, I think he's trying to teach us something here. Laban shows no interest, actually, in going through his flocks to see if Jacob has cheated him. He didn't do that. His heart, um, in his heart, he knows it's the other way around. He knows that he's the one who's been cheating uh, Jacob. Um, and so has God ordained the way this is going to play itself out here. Um, and so what he does want are his gods. He wants his self-respect and he wants his pride. He wants that which he, the flesh, trusts in. So in verse uh, 30 of chapter 30, we note again that he had little before Jacob, the quickening spirit, the quick end spirit, arrived. He had little before Jacob came, and when Jacob came, who was quickened, who's representing the spirit, that suddenly things went, went very well for him. So the question here is, with respect to the idols, or the uh, images and the gods that have been taken, where are they? Who took them? And can the flesh find them? So I'm going to read verses 32 and 35 of Genesis 31. Verses 32 through 35. Jacob is speaking now. With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live before our brethren discern that thou, that what is thine with me, and take it to thee. In other words, find your, find your uh, gods before we even go out into the flock and see which ones belong to you, just to see that I have not, in fact, cheated you. For Jacob knew not, I'm going to read it again, I'm sorry. For with whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live before our brethren discern thou what is thine with me, and take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the two man maidservants' tents, and he found them not. Then went he out of Leah's tent, and he entered into Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. And Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. Search means feel here. He's groping around in the darkness in the Hebrew there. Verse 35, and she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise up before thee. It would be a sign of respect, you know, the fulfilling of the commandment to um, honor your father and mother. So she's asking forgiveness that I cannot stand up, that I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me. And he searched, but found not the images. So, as I mentioned, verse 25, Laban has no tent, but Jacob has a tent, Leah has a tent, the two handmaids have tents, and Rachel has a tent. Now, we've talked about the dysfunctionality of the family before, where all these people are living in separate tents, but here God is telling us something about tents. <laughs> and there are five of them. Well, what does five represent in the scripture? It can represent the flesh because of the five senses. We have sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. Now, 
Interestingly enough, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Peter is talking here, uh, speaking, the Lord speaking through Peter, rather. He says, Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, that's a tent, his body, as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus hath showed me. Okay, he's getting ready to die. You and I, all of us are going to have to put off our body. We're going to have to put off the flesh. Um, now, think about that. This literally happens to Rachel when she puts off her tent. She dies in childbirth, just as does Christ when he gives birth to the church. Beautiful parallel here. So we can appreciate that the five tents there represent the body that we all live in. And if you are born above, born from above Christian, you know that Christ or the Holy Ghost lives in that body too. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? And so we can appreciate spiritually what the Lord is trying to teach us here. So Laban the flesh is searching. He's feeling around inside himself, endeavoring to find his sense of pride and self-worth, but he can't find it. He can't find where they are. Um, they are in the camel's furniture upon which sits a woman with an issue of blood. Now, if you read Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 23, particularly verse 20, you'll find out that when a woman has an issue of blood, she is unclean, and everything she sits on is unclean. And so she renders everything unclean that she sits on for that period of time. Now, also, we note that a camel itself is an unclean beast. That's Leviticus 11.4. So the Lord sets quite an interesting scene here before us um, in that he summing up for us what's written in Isaiah 64.6. Isaiah 64.6, the Lord says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, plural, are as filthy rags. That's the scene the Lord has set before us here. She's sitting on camel furniture, which, or it's a saddle. It's basically what you ride on when you're sitting on an unclean beast. She's made it all unclean by virtue of her issue of blood. And so the filthy rags made reference to here in Isaiah 64, 6 are direct reference to what we have here in terms of um, our righteousnesses. We have none. They're all, they're all filth. And so what we appreciate is that the flesh can't find pride and trust in itself any more than a drunk can't ascertain their true lack of sobriety. A depraved man cannot appreciate and understand their depravity. As I mentioned earlier in the preamble that when the kids went to judge man, whether or not uh, sin is a result of uh, their own heart or whether it's external, they judge themselves as, as okay and they whatever problems they suffer come from the outside rather than from within. The man cannot judge himself. Man doesn't appreciate that um, there's nothing in, that he does that is good, that uh, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and that we are together become unprofitable. They don't appreciate that, but it's, it's true. It's what God has to say about man, that our feet are swift to shed blood. So um, he cannot find those things. The flesh is blind to itself and can but feel or grope around in the dark. That's the best that it can do to try to find the unclean that it thinks might strengthen it or that it might trust in. So failing to realize that when he did have it in hand, he yet had little. When he had the gods in his possession, he yet had little. It never clicked in his head. And so the Lord sets before us uh, much truth in this part of Jacob's life. From the superficiality of these interesting interpersonal relationships, familial relationships, uh, about how we should not navigate them because we see what, what a mess it makes for Jacob and his family. Um, he takes us from the superficiality to help us to appreciate the internal conflict that all Christians suffer as they embrace certain principles and truths and put others away um, which some of which must die. He helps us to appreciate this process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, um, which we later appreciate that 
it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So as I opened in the preamble, we are God's epistle written on his heart, known and read among men. He is working out all things to his glory. He is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. But I tell you what, it is not easy as we work through this process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Most of the things that vex me and aggravate me don't come from the world, don't come from the news, don't come from my neighbors. They come from within my own heart. And I can't tell you how tired I am of me. But I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he works in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. And as the hymn uh, asked the question, and can it be, you know, yes. The answer is yes. It can be. It is because of God's grace. Um, amen.